you guys can open up your uh, Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning. We're going to keep moving along a little bit by by a little bit. Um, well, we're going to be Luke 13, verses 6 through 17. If you need a Bible, you raise a hand. Uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own one, um, you can keep it. It'll be our gift to you. It'll be our pleasure to give you that. But Luke 13, starting in verse 6. And he told this parable. This is obviously Jesus talking here. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Would you pray with me? God, in so many ways, we see ourselves there with this woman in the synagogue. Crooked and bent up, unable to straighten. I know there are so many things we would love to be better at, so many ways we wish we um, would grow in holiness, so many sins that we would love to see drop away, God. We feel crooked. We feel twisted. We feel unable to straighten ourselves. God, this text gives us such great hope. Because you enter the scene. You enter the story. You enter the hopelessness. And where we couldn't do it, and where we fell short, where we were a tangled up mess in knots, with just a word and a touch, you can change and transform. And God, I, my prayer today is that you would use uh, our time in your word 
to enter into the stories of each person here, to enter the scene in the lives of each person here. And you do something of the same for us. You'd help us bear the good fruit. Because, Lord, we know without you we can do nothing. So would you come and do that and more, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I really dive in here this morning, uh, the first thing that I wanted to mention actually is kind of the inherent connection, at least that I see, uh, between the first part of our text, this parable in verses 6 through 9, and then the synagogue scene that follows in verses 10 through 17. I I recognize that at first, uh, it might be difficult to see the connection, but I hope in just a moment you'll kind of see uh, what at least uh, I'm noticing here, and I'm going to kind of leverage these two sections together to hopefully get a better sense of uh, what God is saying in our text. So let, let me show you this first by just even recalling what the, the parable is. Now last week, we did look at um, verses 6 through 9 in particular in some aspects of it. Uh, really what we see in the parable, right, is this fruitless uh, fig tree with a, the owner of the, the, the vineyard that comes in looking for fruit year after year, finding nothing. Uh, he says to the vine dresser, cut it down. The vine dresser pushes back. There's this tension that kind of ensues between them as the vine dresser says, no, give it another year. Let me get in the dirt. Let me try to make this make this tree produce. And then if there's no fruit after another year, you can cut it down. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you'll recall perhaps, I don't obviously have time to do all this again, but we tried to tease out the symbolism in that parable. And we saw that through the Old Testament, images of vineyard and fig tree, these are images for Israel. So what we understand is this fruitless fig tree, really, in Jesus' parable, is him talking about Israel. And this nation that is kind of turning away from God and has, again and again, these people that have rejected, even though they've received so much, even though they've been planted in his vineyard. They've got the greatest soil. Like Romans 2 and other places would say, man, they have received so much, and yet, Where's the fruit? And so Jesus is here uh, speaking in particular to Israel, and they're kind of uh, identified in that fig tree. But then what we saw last time as well, this is really where I camped out, uh, there was this tension I mentioned that was uh, in play between the owner of the vineyard and the vine dresser. What I hopefully made the case for and may hopefully convinced you last week is that what really we see happening in this parable is the tension uh, that subsists between God himself is actually put on vivid display that God in fact is the owner of the vineyard in this parable and the vine dresser that in his in his justice in his holiness he's demanding that the fruitless tree be cut down but then in his desire to be merciful and gracious he's saying no give it another year We looked at that text in Exodus where God speaks of his glory and tells his name to to Moses. And he says, you know, I am the Lord. I I am am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Therefore, let's give it another year, right? But I will by no means clear the guilty. Therefore, if after this year there's still no fruit, justice has to come. Gracious 
and just. Now, um, with this in view, I think you're ready to kind of see with me the connection between the parable and this scene in the synagogue. Uh, because it's actually quite profound if you've been following with us through Luke's gospel. Here's one thing that uh, you, I'm sure you've probably forgotten. I mean, for goodness sake, I forgot it. The commentary reminded me. But if, if you happen to have uh, been reading recently or you're reading it in one sitting, here's one thing you would notice at this point in Luke's gospel. There have been numerous synagogue conflicts on the Sabbath, or Sabbath controversies, they're called, where Jesus is in the midst with these religious leaders or others on the Sabbath day, supposed to be a day of rest, and, 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 and there's this conflict that ensues. This is not just the first time this has happened. It's not even the second time it's happened. It is the third. In other words, gosh, I just kind of see this parable as, as, as what Jesus is talking about. For three years I've come and there's no fruit. Let's give it one more year. Let's keep coming on the same issue and keep trying. I see here, even in the synagogue scene, kind of a, a, an outplaying of that very idea. As here he is again in the Sabbath, trying to explain, uh, on the Sabbath, trying to explain the heart of it. That it's, it's not that uh, man was made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. That God wants to give rest and refreshment. That he loves you. And you've made it this burden of rules and laws and a way of self-righteous kind of concern, building yourselves up and looking down on you, you You've twisted it all up. Luke 6, 1 through 5 was the first time. Luke 6, 6 through 11, the second time. Luke 13, 10 through 17, our text now is the third time we see this sort of controversy. And there will be even yet another one in Luke 14, 1 through 6. He just keeps coming. Keeps coming, looking for fruit. He keeps getting in the dirt, saying, okay, let's dig around. Let's get, let's get some manure on this. Let's try again. Let me show you the heart of my father. And they keep resisting. They keep pushing back. They keep missing it. So here then in this synagogue scene, I think what we have is the picture that's painted by this parable playing out in time and space. The principles that the parable sets forth are here fleshed out in reality. Uh, The two sections of our text kind of work together so that when we read them as a whole, we get a better understanding of it all. You with me? Okay. Now, last week, um, we focused on certain aspects of the parable. I said I was going to return this week and actually talk about fruit. Last week, I really just simply honed in on that tension and and talked about uh, how that's subsisting between God and then finds its resolution at the cross. Uh, This week, I want to talk about fruit in particular, because that features large in the parable, in in case you didn't notice. And I want to dive into that idea a little bit more. And what I plan to do, the reason why I open this way, is I plan to read from the parable kind of towards the scene in the synagogue. I want to kind of, for each point, uh, well, except for maybe the first one, I want to read from the parable towards the scene in the synagogue and hopefully get a better sense of what even this fruit that, that Jesus is after in our lives, that God is after in our lives, looks like. So let me tell you at least where I'm going up here. I want to talk about the necessity of this fruit. I want to talk about the essence of it. And then finally, the production of it. How, how, does, it, how does it happen? How do we produce 
this. So first, the necessity of it. I want to make sure you see how important fruit is. Um, I wonder if you noticed that everything in our parable turns on this idea of fruit. I mean, look at it with me again there, verses 7 through 9. For three years now I've come seeking what? Fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Sir, let it alone this year also, the vine dresser said, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear what? Fruit. Next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here's what I want you to see. The destiny, the future of this tree hinges on whether it produces fruit or it doesn't. If it does, well and good, it is blessed and can remain. If it doesn't, cut it down. So fruit, when it comes to you and I and our desire to be pleasing to God or our desire even for salvation and to to know the redemption of our God, fruit is essential in all of this. We don't have it. It's not going to go well. Now, as I reflected on this, I, I thought, okay, yes, this is an important thing to make note of in every day, in every age, but it is perhaps especially important to make note of in our day. Um, ours is a day where even pastors, as far as I can tell, uh, will so emphasize grace that this idea of, 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 of fruit or good works can kind of get lost, even can get kind of denigrated or demoted. Like, no, actually, we don't need to work. We're saved by grace, not by works. In fact, what can happen in this sort of culture is uh, any talk of fruit, any talk of works and the necessity of it sounds like legalism. We've been trained to sniff that sort of thing out and go, ah! You're legalist. You're talking about justification by works. We've moved on into the covenant of grace. Saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But you're talking about works. Legalism. I'm with Paul on this. It sounds good. Perhaps you've heard it. Perhaps you've even said things like it. But what we need to understand is that 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 is a radical, a gross oversimplification of the biblical teaching. It sounds God-honoring. It sounds Christ-honoring. And yet there's something uh, terribly distorted about it. Uh, it cannot make sense of texts like the one we have before us today. <laughs> That's a problem. It cannot make sense of texts that are actually all over the, the, not just Old Testament, but New Testament, that say we ought to, indeed we must, bear good fruit. It's a necessity. Um, sometimes perusing Facebook has its issues, right? You can fall into the vortex, like three hours later you shake off the dust, you go, what in the world happened? What was I doing? Just looking at memes and all this nonsense. But if you happen to have some pretty legit friends like I do on your Facebook feed, well, then they, they, they post some pretty awesome stuff. 
And uh, my previous pastor uh, posted this incredible quote by Dallas Willard that I just so appreciated, and I wanted to read it to you here on this point. It comes from his book, The Cost of Non-Discipleship, and I want you to hear what he says. A fundamental mistake of the conservative side of much of the Western church is that its basic goal is to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people. Pause there for dramatic effect. (laughs) This creates groups of people who may be ready to die, but clearly are not ready to live. They rarely can get along with one another, much less with those outside. Often their most intimate relations are tangles of reciprocal harm, coldness, resentment, and righteous meanness. They've become, quote-unquote, Christian without becoming Christ-like. I wonder if you heard what he was saying. We think that so long as we say a prayer, ask Jesus into our heart, or we got baptized when we were five, or we walked the aisle and signed a card, whatever it may be, that we're ready to die. And we will inherit heaven and all will be well. And yet he's saying that those who would go that route, who would act like Jesus is just kind of this, 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 this quick kind of get out of jail free card and you get to heaven and there's nothing relevant to this life. It doesn't transform the, the heart. It doesn't change the, the fruit that's hanging on the branches. If you like, that's, that's a big problem. It's a tragic mistake. As Willard, Willard is insinuating here and Jesus is clearly teaching in our parable, If we really want to be ready to die, if we really want to be ready for heaven, then we ought to be especially concerned with how we're living here on the earth. It's not, hey, I'll be fine, no matter how I live here. I accepted Jesus. By grace, we're good. Faith, I know. He says, if you want to be sure you're ready for heaven, let's talk about how you're living on on earth. If there's no fruit now, there will be no salvation then. That's the parable. You cannot truly become a Christian without also progressively becoming more and more Christ-like. When you understand what becoming a Christian is, you'll start to get this and we'll flesh this out more. But it is, it is being reborn. It is being plugged in to the Son of God, the risen Son of God. It is Him invading you. You mean to tell me that a collision with the very one who, with just a word, created all of this, is not going to transform your life? It will. One of the ways you know you've encountered grace, truly, is there'll be fruit in your life. Now, um, our problem oftentimes, I think, on this point, I just wanted to linger here for a moment just to make some clarifications. Um, Our problem, I think, is that we get confused, we, we misunderstand how God's grace stands in relation to God's law. 
I know this may be complex at first, but, but bear with me. We, we think that there are two options that we have when it comes to kind of getting to God. One is God's grace. One is God's law. And so we kind of go, no, we know it's not, you know, we, we get there by way of God's law. So we go, God's grace. And then we kind of think that God's law is no good. But God's law is not the issue. Here's, here's what I want you to understand. God's grace is not opposed to God's law, but it is opposed to legalism. Now, hear me. Legalism is one approach to God's law. Grace is actually another. Legalism says, when it sees the law of God, I can do it. Let me kind of climb up that ladder and make it happen. I uh, need to do this sort of thing in and of myself. And if I do X, Y, and Z, I will get God in my debt and all will go well for me. That's legalism. That's one approach to God's good and holy law. The other approach called grace doesn't say, ah, who cares about God's law? No, it actually helps us fulfill it. But it does it in a different way. It says you can't. He says, yeah, God's law is holy and good. For goodness sake, the Ten Commandments are just a transcription of God's character. He tells us not to lie because he doesn't lie. He tells us not to murder because he's the author of life. He tells us not to steal because he would never steal. He gives. So it's good. It's holy. It's everything we ought to be, everything we want to be. But we can't do it in and of ourselves. God's grace says you, you, you can't get there. On your own. So Jesus, and we'll, we'll, we'll do more of this, but Jesus enters in, lives the life we couldn't live, dies the death we should have died, rises again for our justification, gives us His Spirit so that we can then actually start to look more like Him, live like Him, walk in step with the Spirit, start to actually fulfill the law. So grace is not opposed to God's law. It's opposed to legalism. Grace actually helps us fulfill it. And again, I'll say it. One of the ways you know you've truly encountered grace is it will start to produce fruit in your life. Plugging into the vine, there's going to be fruit that comes forth. That's the necessity of it. I wanted you to see it's it's utterly necessary. We'll talk more in a moment about grace and legalism and other things. But for now, I just wanted you to make note of the necessity of this fruit, that everything hinges on it. Now, second, uh, I want to talk about the essence of this fruit for a moment. Uh, if we so desperately need it, it's probably important that we next ask, well, what exactly is it? If I need this fruit hanging from the branches of my life, what does Jesus mean by it? What is it that he's looking for? And now hit pause on your little DVR or whatever those things are called. I don't have one. Let's talk for a moment. We'll get back to this. I want to know. I want you to answer this question before I do. What do you think the essence of this fruit uh, that Jesus is looking for in our lives is. I wonder if I could bring you up here and have you answer what you'd say. Going to church on Sundays? Perfect attendance, Pastor! Reading your Bible every morning? 
Do you know what I tithe? Let me just tell you one thing. It's more than 10%. Fruit hanging on the branches of this life. Serving, giving your life to the poor, needy. Now, to be sure, all of those things uh, uh, very well are maybe entailed in the idea of producing good fruit, but they do not compose the essence of it. You can do all of those things, First Corinthians 13 would say, and still be missing the essence of what this fruit is. You can be busy in all this activity and still be missing. There's still be no fruit. That's what's crazy. That's why I want you to see this. I draw our attention to this in particular because I'm quite certain, and we kind of make our way towards the, the scene in the synagogue. If, if, if we were to talk about, or if Jesus were to share this parable with these leaders and, and things there in the synagogue, they would surely say that they have the fruit God's looking for. Are you kidding me? Don't you warn me about being cut down? Do you see my life? You see these robes? You hear my, my eloquent uh, speech and the, the wisdom and the scriptures that I know? Do you see my following? People that are here to hear from me? Or, you know my resume? Are you kidding me? I got the fruit. And yet, my goodness, if there's anyone who Jesus is particularly confronting, it's these sorts of people. It's these religious sorts of people. These people that feel and would look, and if we were to take a poll in Israel, they would say, yes, those are the fruitful ones. I wish I could be more like them. The scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the rulers of the synagogue, those are the guys. Look at that. Look at how they keep the law, every little bit of it. And if Jesus is saying, those ones that you would say are most fruitful are the very ones I'm coming saying, where's the fruit? And he's, he's, he's in conflict with these religious leaders in particular. So the question then that we're left with is, what is the essence of it? If it's not all of this, what is going on here? What is the essence of this fruit that he is looking for? And you probably, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 and the illusion I just made, you probably know where I'm going with this. I think it's love. Love for God and love for neighbor. In fact, Jesus would say as much uh, when he, in Matthew 22, verse 40, guys are asking him, kind of, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says, listen, love the Lord your God <laughs> with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second one here, let me throw this one in, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, what, you remember? On these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you want to know what God's been after from Moses till now, all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, you want to know what he's coming and looking for in your life and what he's hoping to produce, what he's hoping to see, what it's all been about, love. It's what everything has been about. It's what, it's what God's been looking for all along. And yet these men in the synagogue, these men who should have known more than anything that that was the case, the very ones who've missed it. So let's look at this scene a little bit more here and I'll show you. 
Verses 10 and 11 start there. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, pause there. Anyone with a pulse would feel compassion, I think, for this woman, right? Bent over, cannot straighten herself. 18 years in this condition. The image in my mind is like, especially because of all the winter storms and things we're seeing on the news and experiencing here, it's like back in Philly when after, after, after a snow and sleet kind of storm, how the, how the trees would just be bent over under the weight of that, almost to the point of buckling. And a lot of times there would be major power outages because the, the trees would break into the power lines and things. That's kind of the image in my mind. This woman's just crushed down to the ground. Anyone with a pulse is going to look and have compassion. And Jesus, of course, models that perfectly. He sees her. His heart breaks for her with a word and a touch. In love for her, here's what we see. Verse 13, immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. I mean, I prayed it in the beginning, but some of us in here in that place. You're just like, I may look nice and pretty on the outside Sunday best, but in my soul, this is me. Just down. I'm praying Jesus enters in and does this very same thing with you here today. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Now, we would think that in view of such uh, a miraculous healing and restoration that the synagogue would erupt in celebration. But the results are mixed. Even seems more negative than positive. And it starts with the ruler of the synagogue. He speaks out in opposition of what he's just seen. Um, uh, look at the verses that follow. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on these days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. I will not put up with this. I'm too holy to let such an infraction of God's holy law, you know, go under my watch. Nuh-uh, violation. I'm calling it out. I'm indignant. This is righteous anger here. But he... Jesus didn't break a biblical command concerning the Sabbath. He broke all some of the rabbinic kind of traditions that were added to it. So the Sabbath day, right, God creates the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh he rested. Then he says to man, guys, I want on the seventh day of your week, enter into that rest with me. And so uh, through the years, rabbis and other things within Israel had put together a list of, okay, if we're supposed to rest, we're not supposed to work, what entails work? I mean, we've got to make sure we, we fulfill this, we obey this. So they had this massive list of things that weren't in the scriptures. And Jesus maybe breaks one of those. It would seem the ruler of the synagogue thinks that he has. But he certainly has not broken The command of God for this day. In fact, here's what's uh, so incredible. I actually think when we catch what the heart of God is for the Sabbath, Jesus gives us a perfect expression and celebration of it. 
It's not a violation of the Sabbath. It's everything the Sabbath stood for uh, on display. Look at Deuteronomy 5.15 when God talks about why he wants them to keep the Sabbath day. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. <laughs> he said the Sabbath is intended to remind you of the great redemption uh, from, from slavery in Egypt and the rest that he brought you out into in himself as his people. That's why I want you to keep the Sabbath. So in other words, therefore, what are we supposed to see when we see Jesus speaking and touching this one, restoring her? What better way to celebrate uh, God entering in to an enslaved people, Pharaoh over top of them, 400 years. What better way to remember and celebrate that than for Jesus to come and free this woman from the tyranny of the devil? 18 years under his weight. And word gone. He has not contradicted or violated the day. He's actually captured it perfectly. This is why when he hears the response of the ruler of the synagogue there, he says this in verse 15, you hypocrites. This is getting to the idea of what can happen on the outside versus the essence of true fruit on the inside. He says, listen, you guys are like actors. You present one thing on the outside that's not true of you on the inside. You look like you're concerned for God's law and and, and you look like you have love for him and others. But truly, all I'm seeing is love for yourself. He even goes on to say, this is how crazy it gets, you guys. You will love your animals more effectively than you love those made in God's image. He uses this play on words even. Uh, In the Greek, it's the same word. He says, you will unbind, or luo, you you will loose your donkey or your ox and let him go drink water, but you're getting on me because I luoed, I loosed, I unbound this woman. Hypocrites. There is love not for God, not for others, but only for yourself. Hence, there is no fruit. If I could put it this way, there are a lot of leaves on the branches of your life. Oh, it looks like there is life. But there's no fruit. And it's dead. Now, there's a text I referenced uh, last week, actually, that I think speaks eloquently on the sort of thing that's happening here in the synagogue. And I wanted to read it again. Isaiah 5, 7. Um, Isaiah is rebuking Israel and he says this, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. That's what I read last week to make the case that the, the fig tree and the vineyard and things are relating to Israel. I didn't finish what he says though. Listen to this. And he looked for justice. This is the owner of the vineyard now coming to look for fruit. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, you're not going to immediately see why I wanted to bring this up. 
But in the Hebrew, it's actually profound. I don't think I'm a Hebrew scholar. I'm not. I know just enough to be dangerous. But I have a uh, good Bible software to help me out. But what I want you to understand, and it's amazing, there's a play on words that Isaiah is, is using here that captures what we see going on in the synagogue, actually. And I wanted to bring that out because what we actually see is in the Hebrew, the word translated justice and the word translated bloodshed are very similar with just a few subtle differences. So let me show you what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, uh, he looked for justice, mishpat, but behold, bloodshed, mishpach. Sounds very similar, couple letters off, and it's the exact opposite. Same thing with uh, righteousness and outcry. He came looking for righteousness, tzedakah, but behold, an outcry, tzedakah. Now, you're still going, what in the world are you talking about? What's the point of this? Let me tell you. Here's what I think is going on. He's saying, listen, you look so close to the real thing. I mean, if I just said those words quickly, you might think it was righteousness. You might think it was justice. But with just a few little twists and a few missing words, a little mix up here or there, and what we have is the absolute opposite of what God was looking for. On the surface, it looks, it sounds the same. Looks good. Little twist, all wrong. It's not justice. It's bloodshed. It's not righteousness. It's an outcry. Or by that, it's instead of righteousness and shalom in the land, there's people crying out because of oppression. They're oppressed by you. It's exactly what's happening in this synagogue. And I wonder, I wonder if it's happening even in our own lives. Let me show you how this might play out for us. I wonder if you've been in the place where you are serving in the church. You're doing a lot. You're setting up chairs. You know, you're leading Bible studies. You're active in evangelism. You are doing so much for the kingdom of God. And then, for some reason, the leadership taps this other person. For the position or whatever that you sure would have liked. Or they recognize and appreciate this person for the work they're doing. And what rises in your heart, sorry to say it, isn't, oh, when another member is honored, rejoice, like First Corinthians talks about. But you start to seethe. Well, who is that? Her? Him? For goodness sake. Jealousy. Resentment. Bitterness. Another member in Christ's body for whom he shed his blood becomes a competitor. And you're looking for opportunities to one-up. And you're making sure people know what you did. And make sure people see. And you're looking for ways not just to one-up, but also to put down. So there's gossip that begins. Did you hear? Did you see? what? Because it's a competition. You see, it looked like justice, but instead bloodshed. It looked like righteousness, but instead there's oppression. It looks good on the outside, a lot of leaves. 
heart is off. No fruit, no love for God, no love for neighbor. Here's another example from my own life. and Well, not that I can't relate to that one. I can, but uh, this one's particularly hard for me. And I remember these times in seminary and other places. But you can sometimes be arguing with another about the truth of God, perhaps even the truths of the gospel. Like acting like it's, you know, I I am here standing in the gap defending the word of God. And I can do it in such a way where I become heated. I become volatile. I become, you know, uh, judgmental and critical. How could you not see it my way? Man, you idiot. Look at the scripture. It says this. I remember, I mean, I hope I've grown in this. Goodness. But I remember... um, conversations with my dad okay so i thought he was gonna i thought he was gonna move away from catholicism towards evangelicalism protestantism and he stayed in the catholic church and and i was i and i we were talking about purgatory and i hate the doctrine of purgatory with a passion it undermines the gospel in so many ways but i would talk about it with him and it would get so heated and so gross that my sister would just have to step up and anytime the subject came up she would just leave the room because I, we couldn't, we could, you see what's happening there now? Hear me, I'm not saying that we are not to stand for truth. But I'm saying that the manner in which we stand for truth matters just as much, perhaps even more to God, than the truth that we're standing for. Meaning, we can contradict. I was contradicting the very gospel I was defending by the manner in which I was defending it. Do you hear that? The anger and the fury has nothing to do with the cross and the son who gave his life for his enemies. Forgive them for they do not know what they do. Where's that heart when I defend the sufficiency of the atonement and the work of Christ? No need for purging fires for millennia. So he took it all. Yes, stand for that. But let the love that that has brought into your life show in the way you stand for it. We can mix up our letters. What we think is justice is actually causing another to bleed. What we think is righteousness is truly oppressing. What we call fruit, God may in fact be calling just a leaf. Because there's no love there. So we've seen that we need it. I hope we see a little bit more clearly what it is, even by looking at the scene in the synagogue. They didn't have it. Jesus is is the one who kind of brings that love to the table. How do we get it? That's the next question. How do we get it? How do you produce this fruit? Now, here is where it seems to me we need to return to this idea of legalism or grace, because I think we have two options at this point. We go, okay, I see uh, that we need fruit. I get a sense of what it is, and I know I need to grow in it. How do I do it? Here's where the fork in the road begins. Legalism is one option. Grace, Christ, is another. Trek with me down legalism for a moment. Let's return to that road. Legalism says again, I can produce it. It looks at the law and says, I can fulfill it. It says, if there needs to be fruit, all right, I better get going on this. But here's the problem. It never works. In fact, it always makes matters worse. 
I'll show you that's what's going on in the synagogue there. They took that road and it ended badly for them. But consider in your own life, I'll show you kind of how this plays out, how it only ever makes matters worse. Imagine there is, it's probably not too hard to imagine, there's a sin in your life that you don't want to be there anymore. You want to start producing the opposite of the sin. You want to start producing fruit. So how do you go about it? What are you going to do? Let's say you take the road that says, all right, I see what I want. I'm going to reach out and get it. I'm going to go after it. I can do it. You read the books. You do the deeds. You discipline. You sweat. And you make some headway in that sin. Gosh darn it. You're going. You're starting to get a little better. You dropped whatever that may have been. You're starting to move in the right direction it seems. But now listen to this. What starts to rise up as you start to make headway? As you start to do it in your own strength? You want to know what starts right? I'll tell you. Pride. And they said it couldn't be done. Look at me now. In other words, you may have gotten rid of one sin, so to speak, and started producing fruit, quote unquote. But all that really happened is another sin just kind of grew up in its place. Perhaps even got worse. So, for example, if you're struggling with uh, pornography or something, which I know a lot of guys do, imagine that you, you know, through just grinning and, and gritting your teeth and, 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 and pushing forward, you get over that habit. You get through it. Mm, I did it. I don't need it. You're throwing your computer out the window. You're doing all whatever I got to do. Flexing your muscles. Well, as you start to be now a month, two, three, four, a year free from what, what do you start to you start to feel pride, and then as you start to see other guys who are struggling with it still and can't seem to get over it, what do you start to feel judgment? Like, come on, I did it, you can do it. Impatience, criticism. Or perhaps you look and you see another guy who's done it better. So you like the following that you got from the guys who are going, teach us, wise master, how you did this. And then you see them start to follow another one who's done it better. His program's more effective. His ways are, you know, what, what do you feel? That jealousy, envy. Mm. You haven't actually killed sin. Or born any real meaningful fruit. You've actually made matters worse. When we approach sanctification or fruit bearing in our own strength, we will never escape the labyrinth of our sinfulness. We will only wander deeper in. The image in my mind, for some reason, came to me at this point was the idea of like, I don't know if you guys had to read kind of the mythology stuff. I was an English major, so I did. But Hercules comes on the scene and he's supposed to slay the Hydra or whatever, which is like that snake thing with all these heads. He cuts one head off. And what happens? Here's another story. Two grow back in its place. There's now two mouths coming at him. You cut one of those, another, now there's three. You go. In other words, all the effort, all the labor, if it's me, myself, and I going at this, makes it worse. 
It doesn't get better. You might exchange red letter sins, but you just replace them with white letter sins. You look holy and pure, but you've got this wicked, twisted heart full of pride and judgment. And, mm. You haven't taken care of the root. The only way to get rid of the, 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 the hydra, so to speak, is to cut it off at its root, to go underneath and take it at its heart. And as we'll see, only Jesus can do that. But hopefully you get it. I mean, this is what's happening in the synagogue here, I think. These guys have gone the route of legalism. We're going to produce fruit that way. They love the, the praise, the approval. They love that people are looking at them going, teach us the way. And then along comes Jesus. He enters in. He does something. Everyone's looking at him now. So he's indignant. Why? Because he cares about God's law? No, because he loves himself. And Jesus is a threat. He's losing his fan base. He's losing his identity. He's being exposed for what he truly is. Oh, he looked like he had a lot of fruit, but it was just leaves. Cut off one head and there's two, three, four more in its place. How do we get right if not in our own strength? It's by way of grace. It's by way of Christ. And I think that's what this woman is picturing for us in our text. I want you to see this. Look at it again. The crooked woman bent over. She's a picture physically of what we all are spiritually. Helpless unable to straighten ourselves. You see that verse 11? She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. The Greek could be rendered literally. She did not have the power. She did not have the power in herself to straighten things out. See, at least she's honest. The religious leaders and whatnot, they're the, they're the crooked kind of straight. They look good, but they're twisted up too. At least she's honest, out in the open. I am broke. There's nothing I can do. Helpless. There's no power in me to take care of this. It has to come from outside. It has to come from Jesus. It has to be of grace. I think Romans 7, 4 through 6, wonderfully fills out and kind of draws to a close all that I'm after on this point. And I wanted to read this to you. Hear what Paul has to say. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may what? Bear fruit for God. You want to bear fruit for God? It's not going to be by way of the law and climbing it up, climbing up yourself. It's going to be joining to another, the one who died in our place and has been raised up for us. Join yourself to him and his life will start to infuse into yours and you will bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now, in Christ, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you hear what he is saying? He's saying everything that we've been looking at to this point. He's saying the law is going to make you worse if you approach it in your own strength, like a legalist. Grace opposes that. Yes, it does. You cannot do it. You are bent over and crooked. You try to do it. It just gets worse and you bear the fruit for death. But there is another way. It's Christ. And it's His Spirit. And here's what He's saying there at the end. The law was written on tablets of stone. But Jesus, by His Spirit, is going to write that law on our hearts. He's going to help fruit come forth the way it ought to come forth, the only way it truly can come forth, from the inside out. He's going to cut Hydra off at the root and change us there so that we can bear honest, true fruit in love for God and neighbor. Are we imperfect? Yes. He will see to it. So, the place to start in producing fruit, I think, this morning, perhaps even, is where you need to be. Uh, The place to start is to own up to our own crookedness. Own up to our own inability. See ourselves in this woman bent over, unable. And stumble our way towards Jesus. (laughs) Just fall. That's the place where fruit begins. Falling at his feet and letting him, hear me now, letting him love you there. See, we get all tangled up when we try to earn love. And it make, makes it feel good. We've got to work. We've got to earn it. Makes us feel like we can still produce something in ourselves. I'm telling you something, there's something radically freeing when in your mess, in the place of your crookedness, you let Jesus love you. You let him touch you. You let him speak into the guilt and the shame. You let him accept you. You let him draw you near. You know what that does? That snaps all that pride, self-righteous thing, so that when you see other people still caught in the sin, that you maybe now are free from, you have such compassion. It's him, not me. How does the story end? They all glorified God, not the woman. They were filled with joy, absolutely. But the glory went to God. And so we all just start to look at him together. The wonder of his grace. And when people are stuck in sin, you're no longer looking down. You're reveling in Jesus, pointing them to Jesus. Let me leave you with John 15, 5. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. God, thank you for entering our story. Thank you for coming on the scene in the midst of our crookedness. Thank you for speaking into our shame. In the places where we feel hopeless and unable. God, we truly are.
hopeless and unable in and of ourselves. But God, with you, you make a way for life. You make a way for a fruitless people, a dry and barren people, to bear fruit for God. By grace. It's in your name I pray. Amen.